as you turn there. We're looking at how in the life of Jacob is illustrated um, in his wrestling match with God, scheduled by God, is illustrated the tension between um, a believer who's moving away from being just in relationship and no fellowship to being both in relationship and fellowship. God has a plan for Jacob. He's promised to do some things through Jacob, which he did do. And as a matter of fact, is is still doing, even to this day, until he brings it all to fruition at the end of this age. And uh, this is a signature life and signature time in his life. And I really believe that there is a uh, there are those among us. Matter of fact, this is guaranteed to be true. Either we're headed toward Jabot, um, we're there now, or we've been through one and we can help other people and encourage them. But there's a Jabot, there's a wrestling match scheduled in our lives by a holy, divine, sovereign God that is identical to the one that Jacob encountered here and we can learn much from it and learn how to anticipate if we're about to go into one, we can learn how to victoriously persevere if we're in one and we can do what God always does and He takes what He brings us through and uses us to be a blessing to others. So uh, would you, in reverence for God's precious Word, stand with me as we read from it. Verse 22, And he arose that night and took his two wives, his two female servants, and his eleven sons and crossed over the ford of Jabbok. He took them, sent them over the brook, and set, sent over what he had. Then Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Now when he saw that he did not prevail against him, he touched the socket of his hip, and the socket of Jacob's hip was out of joint as he wrestled with him. And he said, Let me go, for the day breaks. But he said, I will not let, let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, What is your name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have struggled with God and with men and have prevailed. And then Jacob asked, saying, Tell me your name, I pray. And he said, Why is it that you ask me about my name? And he blessed him there. So God called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face, and my life is preserved. Just as he crossed over Penuel, the sun rose on him, and he leant on his hip. Therefore to this day the children of Israel do not eat the muscle that shrank, which is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip in the muscle that shrank. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. Um, what does Jabot mean? Pardon? Does anybody remember what Jabot means? Pardon? Empty. Empty. At the brook of Jabot. This is where Jacob was emptied. When he met for this wrestling match, who was he wrestling with? Of the three members of the Trinity, which one is he? Jesus. is a pre-incarnate encounter and display of the Son of God Himself. He's wrestling with Jacob. Do you remember the situation that Jacob was facing? He's about to see who? Well, they were good terms as far as Jacob knew. No. He had swindled him out of his birthright and then out of the blessing of the firstborn. He'd been a swindler all his life. And you remember Jacob is heel catcher. He's a deceiver. He's a manipulator. He's a con artist. That had got him by all up until now, but his con tricks were... He'd run out of them. He had no more in the bag. And God schedules a wrestling match with him 
the likes of which are, just, are, are told to us and yet illustrated again for us in the Scriptures in Romans chapter 7 where Paul tells of his wrestling match. If you're a believer and you're in a relationship with the Lord, He has one scheduled for us. This is the place you're recalled and we've looked at time and again where Jacob is coming to a place where a life of conniving and scheming God wants to come to an end and replace his conniving and scheming with resting and trusting. Jacob had gone about motivated by God's promises, but as we can all too fall in, too easily fall into the trap to, he went about trying to accomplish them and bring them to pass through his own effort. Um, in the in the in the world, the world will tell us, you know, that. Uh, the end justifies the means. Uh, that's not true with God. That, that's not true. God is just as concerned with where we get, uh, with how we get there as to where, we, where, where, we, where we're headed. But He's a forgiving God. He's a merciful God. And He's merciful. Uh, and your testimony of God's mercy, the only, you, you, you can look to the Bible and see God's mercy. And then another place you can look is in the mirror. Because uh, as merciful as God has been with some of these characters in the Bible, and it's easy for us to read what goes on there because we know the story and, and, and go, wow, how could they act like that? But before we do that and before we let that take root, we need to remember and have an appreciation for how often we have and still act that way. And matter of fact, our actions sometimes are worse than theirs because we have the whole story. It's unfolding with them. Now we have the whole of God's counsel of God's word, and yet we still do and, uh, this, and make the same tragic choices they make. But you remember we talked about last week that Jacob incorrectly but understandably reasoned that his greatest enemy was outside of him, Esau. And at this place, God revealed to Jacob that his greatest enemy was on the inside. We are not in the flesh when we get saved. We're in the Spirit. We're not in the flesh, but the flesh is in us. Uh, there, there is a, 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 a the potential for the um, the influence of the flesh in our lives, even though we're in Christ, and we've got to realize and see the terms of this battle. And one of the one of the things that we observed as we've been going through this is that when 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 God asked Jacob for his name, you'll recall that we were recognizing the fact that the reason God asked Jacob for his name is not because God did not know under the cover of night who he was wrestling with. God's the one who scheduled the match. And he scheduled it with Jacob. It was because he was pulling out of Jacob the rest of the self-confidence and the deceitful nature that he carried with him to that brook. And he was pulling out of Jacob a confession that Jacob needed to make. And that is that God's strength is not made perfect in weakness it is made perfect in recognized weakness. That he had to pull out of him and say, okay, heel catcher, manipulator, that's me. That's me. That's me. Because until he reveals, until we see it and own up to the fact that our weakness exists, then we still persist in thinking that we can make it and do it on our own. God exposes that to him. And then he's... He's, he's getting him to a place where he's trying to get us as well, and that is we rest in what's already been done. In the Christian life, we have this obsession with new things. We have this obsession with sensationalism 
uh, that has become kind of like the, uh, in the in the church culture in general, kind of the pathology of modern day church culture in America. We seem like we've got to we've got to outdo ourselves. We've got to put on a better show. We've got to bring it home better. We've got to serve better coffee. We've got to do all that and all these things in order to shore up what is insufficient in the first place. That that's a that's that's not an indictment on God and the insufficiency of God. It's an indictment on us because we've come to view him as being not enough. It's a tragedy. And 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 Jacob was in that place. And and, and so when God scheduled this wrestling match, he was going to knock out of the Jacob the rest of what was left in him. And he and he, and so he persevered and we observed the fact that in the wrestling match you may find yourself in right now. And they come in varying degrees in the wrestling match that you find yourself in right now. One of the greatest words that you could apply, which is one of the greatest words in the Christian walk, is this word. And it's perseverance. It's perseverance. That, that at the same spot that we observed where Jacob was emptied was the same spot he changed to Peniel, which meant face of God. At the same place where he was emptied is at the place, at that very place where he was destitute, is where you encounter God. And we talked about the fact that the songwriter when he said there's pain in the offering, even when there's pain in the offering, blessed be the name of the Lord. That, that uh, there was pain in this offering. When he, when he took his hip out of joint, that was a painful thing. But he endured through the pain and kept wrestling. Why? Because there was a bit of trust in him that there was something worth enduring. And that trust is the trust of Christ himself. We've talked about this before, but when you are gifted with faith in God, you're gifted with the faith of God. And the faith that you and I rest in that perseveres is a gift from God. It's divine. That's why you can count on it. That's why you and I with confidence can say we're eternally saved because the faith that saved us is eternal because it's from God. It's of God. It is God. And so the same faith that led him to endure is the same faith that we talked about in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Look at it. Look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. The same faith that he held on to. I'm not going to let go till you bless me. Implication? I believe there's blessing out there. I believe that there is something uh, worth persevering for. I, I, I view perseverance as being valuable because you're accomplishing something through this. That you didn't just schedule this wrestling match to shame and humiliate me. You scheduled this, this wrestling match to sacrifice me so that I can experience thee. So there's got to be some kind of anticipation that it's worth persevering. Whatever you're going through right now, it's worth persevering. It's worth it. God scheduled the appointment. God is sovereign over wherever you are right now, regardless of maybe the choices you made that He didn't lead you to make to get you where you are. God's that big. He's sovereign over the moment that you're in. He's sovereign over the situation that you're in. And perseverance is the key. Jacob did not get hurt and then run off. He would have missed the blessing. Many of us in Christian life, we talked about this analogy before. God puts us on the operating table. The Holy Spirit's the anesthesiologist. He administers the anesthesia in a perfect way so that we can stay and endure through what would otherwise be terrible pain. And the reason he does that is so we can endure through the rest of the operation. And what do we do? But in the midway of the operation, we get up with a big hole in ourselves, 
and subject to great infection and get off of the operating table and go about our business and wind up in worse shape than we were when we started. But perseverance is not just for the sake of perseverance. Perseverance is based on promise. I'm not going to let go until you bless me. Implication? I believe there's some blessings to be enjoyed here. I believe what you told me back then that you were going to work through me to build a nation in this land that you were going to give us and you're going to do a great work. And if I believe that, that must mean I'm going to live through this encounter with Esau. But if I live through this encounter with Esau, it will not be based anymore on my negotiating skills. It will be based on trust in you. And so he held on because of the same reason and, and was succoring from and drawing from the same faith that's found right here in Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. Therefore, all, we also, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, these are not witnesses that are up in heaven watching what's going on down here. That would make heaven hell. I don't believe that for a minute. I've heard this used at funeral passages in particular. You know, well, there's a whole cloud of witnesses that are watching what's going on down here. I sure hope not. No, there are a cloud of witnesses in the preceding chapter who have given witness and watched the faith of Christ manifest in them. They have been witnesses to the faith of Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. This is a, this is a Jesus-centered passage. He's saying that those in the hall of faith that preceded in the preceding chapter endured and persevered based on, fueled by, motivated by, and sustained by the faith of Jesus Christ. Not just the faith in Jesus Christ. That's the kind of faith you have. Now, it says, Therefore we also, since we're surrounded by a great crowd of witnesses, witnessing the faith of Jesus, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and let us run with... It's <laughs> a great word, isn't it? Perseverance, endurance, the race that's set before us, looking unto Jesus. Why, is the, why does it say unto? Because it's calling us to do the same thing that those in the hall of faith did. I'm looking unto Him. In other words, the picture is this. Jesus, I'm looking to your life and the faith that motivated you as being my own and the source from which I draw. I, you're my substance. You're my provision. You're my hope. You're my power. You're my king. And I'm in your kingdom and I'm trusting you. It's childlike faith. It's not childish. It's childlike the race that's set before us, the author and the finisher of our faith, the confidence in the fact that this is the confidence that Jacob had. Here's what I know. You promised me you were going to do these things through me. It's a promise of Jesus. It's a promise of His salvation. And here's what I know. The implication, I'm smart enough to know this. In order for you to fulfill these promises, I have to live. <laughs> so Jacob, I mean Esau, must be, it must be that he's not going to kill me. And I'm looking to you because you made some promises and you're the author and the finisher of our faith. When is it ever going to get to the place in the Christian life that we finally rest in the fact that that which sustains us is the one who has already done it? That we are trusting in a work that is finished. 
It's not anything left undone in the kingdom. It's already been done by the author and the finisher and the perfecter of our faith. And what was the motivation? This is Jacob. I come out of this wrestling match with a messed up hip. But I come out of this wrestling match. I'm coming out of this wrestling match because there is joy to be realized and secured on the other side of it. Jesus said, for the joy that was set before Him, He endured the suffering and the pain of the cross. You know what? Even in the flesh, we endure a lot of things because we have an objective that we want to secure after having endured it. We'll endure, an athlete will endure pain to his body and abuse his body because he has an expectation that one day he might be rewarded for it. And somebody endures a, a, a hard, rigorous coursework in college and endures to secure graduate degrees and further. Why? Because they believe on the other side of it there's something worth obtaining. There's an objective. And I've got great news. The God's got a great news. That on the other side of your penile is nothing but a perfect, complete Jesus. And the joy that only He can give. Not changing your circumstances, but changing you. Hallelujah for that. And so we talked about it last week, and this is the coolest thing. And it's just, we need to remind ourselves of this. That you don't go to a wrestling match with God and come out on top. God wins. Anybody who thinks they can wrestle with God and win is delusional. And they certainly are with, They're worshiping a God who's not in this book. But what happened here was, he said, your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, because you struggled with God and men and you prevailed. And what we observed last week was is that God prevailed and credited Jacob with the victory. And that's exactly what He did for you and I through His Son. He prevailed through Him and then imputed righteousness to you and I. He made us righteous and now we're in Christ. And He secured a victory for which we get the spoils. And not only that, we get the credit for it. You have prevailed. And God's in the shadows of the scene saying, no, I prevailed, but I gifted you with the victory that I purchased in the first place. That's Christian living. Hallelujah. He said, you prevailed. And he said, tell me your name, I pray. And the reason he said, there's no reason to ask for my name. You know who you're wrestling with? You know why there's reason to ask? Because there's no reason to ask for name because there's only one person there anymore. Nobody else is around. Israel, God rules. The kingdom of God is Christ. That's why He said the kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God is secured by the Son of God. He's the only one who obeyed Him. He's the only one who's ever submitted to Him. He's the only one who ever came down to the earth and did a righteous act. No one's righteous. No, not one. No one does good. No one seeks God. They've together become unprofitable. Their mouths are like tombs. Every time they speak, nothing but death comes out. The only one who obeyed and the only one who secured kingdom living for you and I is King Jesus. And so he said, there's no sense in asking my name. Why? Because there's only one of us here anymore. I've been crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not in. I live by the faith of the Son of God. Not in. No, my faith is of God. I'm born of God. Whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcometh the world. Even our faith. I'm born of God. God says, there's only one standing here now. No sense in asking that. You're Israel. 
The rule of Israel and the kingdom rule in the life of the believer is not secured by the believer. It's secured and given by Jesus. Jesus is the kingdom of God. And then we said, He's no longer Jacob. He's now called Israel. He's now called Israel. Boy, there's broad implications from that. Broad, big, giant implications about the whole of whole Scripture and the whole of history for that matter. But Spencer's going to flash up on the screen here. We've been going through and saying, okay, here are some attributes of a Christian who's in fellowship with the Lord. This is an attribute of the way a Christian who is in fellowship with the Lord, these are attributes of Him. We drew them from the Bible. We didn't make them up and say, boy, this is just great. We drew them from the Bible. These are, these are attributes and we've got them up on the screen up here. Our Spencer's going to put them up here. And they're a series of B statements. B statements. And you remember, we said... That one. Yeah, that's it, Spencer. That's it. Okay. Um, we can be focused, sober, content, watchful, prayerful, loving, in summary, holy. Those are attributes of a Christian who's in fellowship with the Lord. A Christian who's in fellowship with the Lord, who doesn't have a bent, a focus on heavenly, eternal things. A Christian who's in relationship is not in fellowship if our focus is this way. You just mark it down. You mark it down. I'd love it during our fellowship time if conversations would swirl around Christ and what He's doing in our life. I'd rather, would it be great if our conversations, the whole epicenter, that was one thing that God taught Kelly at Ellerslie, is the whole epicenter of our conversation was something about how Jesus had worked through a common everyday moment or a common everyday experience to show Himself faithful to me and did something to draw me and Him closer together to one another. That's the kind of thing. We can be focused. And we can be sober. We can be sober. We don't have to be drunk with the acceptance of others. We don't have to be motivated. You remember L? L-W-I, living, or L-U-I, living under the influence. What influences you? We don't have to be motivated by riches and the desire for other things and all the other things that you can put in there. We can be led by the Holy Spirit. If we're not, then we're not in fellowship with the Lord. If, we're, uh, if we have a life that's characterized by discontentment, we are not in fellowship with the Lord. If it's characterized by, by contentment, we are. You have nothing to be incontent about if you know Christ. And then we can be watchful. We, we, we're going to be watchful. We're going to have a heads-up orientation. We're going to start looking at things through the lens of Jesus. And we're going to start processing our life and activities based on how He's working in the moment, how I can connect to what He's already done. And then we can be prayerful. If, if, if our prayer life, if we, if we have a Twitter account with God, and we tweet God every now and then, and, and if our prayer life is shallow and it's, it's superficial, we are not in fellowship with the Lord. We're not. But, but we can be. And then we can be loving. Did you know one of the greatest things that does damage to churches uh, the world over is lovelessness. You know that we as Christians, when we profess that we know God through Christ and we make claims to faith, the world does expect us to act differently. And when we don't act differently, they have a good reason to question whether or not the faith that we claim to have changed us is legitimate. That should be the characteristic of church. We can be that way. And to sum it all up, the character of God, the circumference, if you could do it that way, but you can't. But let's just say you could just sum up the character of God. The circumference of the character of God is He's holy. 
He's, he's righteous because He's holy. He's good because He's holy. He's eternal because He's holy. It sums up. He's separate and apart from everything that we know and think. And here's the good news. And this is what we need to, to, to own up to and to embrace as believers. It's the next screen. Is that we can be those things because... In Christ, we are those things. See, if you wait until you think you can be those things, and that is done independently without recognizing you are in Him those things, then you will not have His power for which to realize them. It will be a cheap substitute for what could be eternal. We can be those things because in Christ, we are those things. The teaching of positional truth and the fact that we are rightly related to God through His Son, and that's the key to holy living, is all over the Bible. What God says about believers. Can I say this? Part, a, a, a good portion of the Gospel, a good portion of the Gospel is to inform someone of God's verdict on their life before court convenes. Did you hear that? A good portion of gospel witness, the first part of the gospel witness. What are the court in, in what are the court in human court is that the case? In our system of justice, an accused person is accused a person is accused of a crime and the prosecutor amasses evidence. And they present that evidence to a court of law, and a jury hears it. And they go for a season of time, however long it takes, and deliberate, and try to come up with a conclusion of guilt or innocence. So the, the, the accused is left with the unnerving proposition of sitting there in the seat of the accused, waiting to see how it's going to turn out. But God's not that way. This ought to, this ought to make you just more impressed with God. Ahead of time, before court ever convenes, the gospel witness is to inform someone of God's verdict on their lives before they ever get to court. Now, why would God do that? Why would God do that? To give them a chance to repent because He's merciful. God's merciful. And what He's saying is this. He sends up a warning sign. It says before court ever convenes, and I'm going to convene court one day, and I'm the judge, and in and, and my opinion, I, I've already rendered the opinion, I've already settled the verdict, and apart from my son, you are what? Guilty, and you are condemned, and you are going to be consigned to hell for eternity, and before you ever get to court, I'm going to send Brian Fox, your neighbor, to go over and tell you through my word that you're guilty. But I want you to know of your guilt, not so you can stay there. I want you to know of your guilt to break you to the point where you repent and call out for mercy through my Son, for which, if you do, you will receive. That makes me so proud of Jesus, I want to just scream. Isn't that wonderful that He would do that? Now, on the other side of the coin, it's equally as true. For the believer... Watch this now. Let's go to Romans chapter 7. Paul goes through this wrestling match. I mean, uh, yeah, Paul's going through the same wrestling match. This is Paul's penile. He's talking about that Paul's, Paul's, Paul's jabbock 
the place of, of, of Paul's Jabbok experience in Romans chapter 7 is that he tells us that there was a signature sin in his life. There was a sin in his life that he just could not seem to secure victory for. Let me ask you a question. Is there a sin in your life that you just cannot seem to secure victory for? Or maybe more than one. You know, and you, you, you'll do it, you'll commit the sin, and you'll come out of it, and you'll, you'll purge and say, I'm not going to do that again, ever. Mm, mm. I'm never going to do that again. Thank you for forgiving me, Lord. I'm never going to do that again. And then only to fall victim to it again. And then again, and then again, and again, and again. And this cycle is going over. For the Apostle Paul, doesn't it make you feel really kind of proud of Jesus that he would give us an example of Paul and say, Paul, this big shot who wrote 13, possibly 14 of the 27 books of the New Testament had a signature sin that he struggled with and it was the sin of covetousness. The Apostle Paul was highly insecure. He was highly insecure. He was riddled with insecurity. His life, and his life hinged upon what other people thought of him. He was a Pharisee on steroids, not because he was attracted to Phariseeism because of its truth. He was attracted to Phariseeism because it elevated him above other people and he was looked to as a spiritual go-to. And that puffed up his pride. Here comes Dr. Paul. He has a PhD in legalism. Aren't you proud of me, God? I do this, that, and the other. And look at these other nuts over here. And God says, I am not proud of you and you don't know me. And he broke him one day. But still, post-Christianity, a saved man wrote this. He said, I struggle with covetousness. I struggle when I go into a synagogue of divesting myself of my Jewish roots because of what it stands to cost me. I struggle because I had standing with these people and my commitment to Christ and His gospel. I have lost that standing. But I've got good memories of it. And there's always this attraction when I go in there. I'm wrestling because I want to round off the gospel of the edges or maybe apologetic for salvation through faith in Christ alone. This, this Christ who is publicly humiliated and died on the cross of Calvary. I have a tendency to be ashamed of Him. I need you to pray for me to be bold because I can be in the middle of it. And those, those fond memories of being a great zealot for God in Phariseeism, they start to come back. They start to haunt me. And the very things that I want to do, I wind up not doing. And the very things that I don't want to do, I wind up doing it. Who is going to rescue me from this tyranny? I cannot stand it any longer. And He comes out of it and says, but nonetheless, I'm going to press on. I'm going to forget what's behind. And I'm going to look forward to the things ahead. I'm not going to let go till you bless me. I'm coming out of this. And what does he come out of it and say? Who will rescue me from this body of sin and death? Praise God, Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. That's where your rescue comes from. He came into the fact and realized that that is not who I am anymore. I am not a slave to sin. I am a slave to righteousness. And when you're a slave to the righteous, you're free. So he comes out of that in this wrestling match and I can just see him. He's like a... He's like a... a something struggling. What is it? Out of a cocoon. You know, to come out and be the butterfly. You know, and then the struggle. He's in there trying to come out of that shell. And then suddenly, suddenly he breaks forth 
And there's a beautiful butterfly. And he comes into it. It's unfortunate that there's a separation between the end of Romans chapter 7 and the beginning of Romans chapter 8. Men put that there. I don't think God did. And right there it says, Who will rescue me for this sin and death? Look at the tail end of Romans 7. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? The equivalent for him saying that he was a wretched man was the equivalent for God asking Jacob, What is your name? And the Apostle Paul said, I'm affirming one thing. Apart from you, I'm a wretched man. Jacob, you're a swindler. You're a heel catcher apart from my son. I'm pulling that out of you. I know that. But buddy, you need to know that. Because it's recognized weakness where we're made strong. So he says, look at this. Oh, wretched man that I am, who delivered me this body of death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh the law of sin. He's drawing a distinction that says this. And this is an important scriptural principle. In practice. In practice. Not in position, but in practice. The new birth does not alter my flesh. It's still as sorry as it's ever been. God expects nothing from sin from it. The only thing that my flesh and your flesh can do is sin. And I was a proficient sinner. Weren't you? I had a PhD in sin. And you know what? We all graduated from honors. But then there's no, there's no separation, Brother Greg. He says, there is. Watch this. You see? You see the tent right there? That says R. Right there. I'll put with anything. That says R. We are. Now what did he say? What did he say? He said, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. You know what that is? The verdict for the lost person, as of right now, before court convenes, is guilt. But the verdict for the saved person, right now, before court convenes, is innocent. Right now. Just like it gives... See, we're good at emphasizing that part on the lost person. You know, he's been condemned. God's handed down the verdict. It's guilty. Right now. And we get to tell people that so they can repent. But God, at gloriously more important, has handed down the verdict for the saved person before court convenes. And uh, we settled out of court, by the way. <laughs> Amen? Hey, we settled out of court. And he's, he's handed out a verdict. And the verdict is innocent! Free of all charges! You are not guilty because you're in my Son. And that's why all those bees can be realized because we are those things already. Christ secured my victory and yours. And just like He gave Jacob credit for prevailing in a victory He won, He gives you and I credit through His Son. I'm going to tell you something right now. Shame on the amount of abuse that's been taking place in the body of Christ because of the oppression of God's people trying to keep them bound by people who are not free themselves. Death can't stand life. And, and, and I'm going to tell you, do you know this? We've talked about this verse before. Jesus said this. It's an abomination. It's an abomination to me to call a wicked man just and to call a just man condemned. You know what the word abomination means? 
He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the just, Proverbs 17, both alike are an abomination to God. You know what we're saying? We're saying that our judgment is superior to God's. And He's not as informed as we are. And so what do we go about doing? We try to justify the actions of the wicked to fool Him into thinking He's alright with God when He's not. And we condemn the actions of the just uh, by shaming them rather than informing them that they don't have to act that way anymore because God changed it through His Son. <laughs> wow. We've got things topsy-turvy. We've got an opportunity right now for God from heaven to speak to you and me in our moment to celebrate at the Lord's Supper that in Christ you are justified. <laughs> Hallelujah. What a celebration meal. Isn't that wonderful? We're going to get to sit at the table of God Himself. God Himself. And take that which symbolizes, not that which is, but that which symbolizes His broken body and His blood. And we're going to get to enjoy that because we have a right to sit there because of God's faithfulness through His promises through His Son. Do you have the relationship? If you have the relationship, first pass, you can sit at this table. That's not because we say you can. The authority is God's Word. If you've repented toward God and put faith in His Son, you sit at the table. Hallelujah. And all these things that God can... We want to be. We already are. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> and if you're out of fellowship with Him this morning and... Uh, there's conviction weighing heavy on your heart. The only reason He would bring that is because He wants you to back in fellowship. <laughs> not some, God's not some distance God who <clears throat> wants, to, wants you to earn your way back into fellowship. You can't. You can no more earn your way back into fellowship with God than you can to earn your way into relationship with God. You ever thought about that? You can't earn your way into fellowship, a relationship with God through anything. It's a gift. And you know what? By the same token, to get back into fellowship with God's a gift too. You can't earn that. There were those who would teach that. Go out and do the following. You know, go out and say a bunch of Hail Marys or what have you, or maybe give us some money and you get back in fellowship. Uh -uh. No, repentance. We confess our sins. He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And instantly, fellowship is secured. Do that this morning if you're out of fellowship. Ask Him to examine your heart. We're going to participate in the Lord's Supper. What a great, wonderful grace that is that God would give us opportunity to do that. And as we do it, let God, let's ask God to search our hearts in quiet reflection. Not just reflection where we stare at our navels, but I'm talking about quiet reflection where we ask the Holy Spirit to show us and illuminate our hearts that there's something you know, in there <clears throat> and lead us in the way everlasting. So while we and uh, Brother Ted and Scott, you, you, if you all will come and we'll serve this, and Brother Joe, it will serve the elements. And while we're doing that, in the silence, in the silence, it's just reverently talk to Jesus about that. And then when we're ready to, to partake, Brother Dr. Brian will come up here and, and, and lead us. Okay, let's do that right now. <clears throat>